Last week, in my message, Taking Your City for Christ, Part 1, I'm just going to give you a quick little review of the things that we talked about last week. When Hezekiah came into power there, he was 25 years old. It says, on the first day of the first month, he began to clean the temple. He opened the doors. The first thing he did was tear down the altars of the, of the past. The high places that had been uh, erected. They actually had worshipped the, the serpent that, that, that Moses had put on, the bronze serpent that he had put on the, the pole. They were worshipping that. They were burning incense to it. And he tore down those things. He grinded them up. Now, I was thinking to myself, what Moses did is when they had, remember the calf and, and the things that they were worshipping, he, he ground it up and made them drink it. Um, but good for us that he, didn't do, he doesn't make us do that. He doesn't make us drink our, our past and our past sins and our past religious things that we've erected. But in 2 Corinthians 10.4, it says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish and tear down strongholds. Hezekiah starts this process and then the people follow. In 2 Chronicles 31, it says, when, when all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went into their towns of Judah and smashed the sacred stones. And they cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. And after they had destroyed them all, the Israelites had turned to their own towns and to their own property. So, what I'm getting at today is they, Hezekiah couldn't just do this on his own. It, the people had to catch the vision and go, okay, I see what you're saying here. This, we've, we've been doing this for a long time. Maybe this needs to be torn out of our lives. Maybe it, maybe it started off as a good thing, which it did. Think about that, that bronze, that bronze uh, pole was something that actually brought healing. The next thing he did is he opened the doors. See, we have to open our hearts, prepare a place for God to reside. This talks about a cleansing, a purification, and a repentance. There's three parts that go along with opening the doors. Redeeming, restoring, and renewing. We repent for the sins of our past. Redeeming. Repenting for the sins of the present. Restoring us into right relationship with God. And then transformation and commitment. Renewing those things that we say, making those vows new again and whole before God. The next thing he did was he cut off the supply to the enemy. We have to stop feeding the enemy. See, if we, could, if we allow the enemy to, to roost around our lives, guess what? If we could, that which you feed is going to continue to grow. So we have to cut off the supply. In 2 Chronicles, and then the last thing they did is he bound, they binded together. 2 Chronicles 30, 12, it says, Also in Judah... The hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. What I want us to understand today with this is that, you know what, when we catch that vision and we unite ourselves, I can't do it on my own. I can't do it just with my wife. What we have to do is we catch that vision and all of a sudden we begin to tear, we tear down those things and now we bind ourselves together and we say, okay, now God is able to accomplish those things that he's talked about. I want you to think just this morning, just for a minute. I'm going to back up just a second there. This king, Hezekiah, was 25 years old. It says in 2 Chronicles 
in the first month of the first year of his reign. I want you to imagine the difficulty we would all have if a 25-year-old preacher came in here and said, and some of you are thinking, well, we got a 50-year-old preacher who's doing the same thing. <laughs> Somebody told me this past week, they said, Greg, you know what? It's as if you're insinuating to us that we've been doing it all along wrong. Well, I will tell you this, that every single time there's a renewal from, from God's Spirit, there is a repenting. If, if you haven't repented in a while, it's time we get to that place. That's why this altar is here. This altar is not a decoration for the church. This altar is a place where we can come and cry out to God. This, 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 the idea of this is, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe we've allowed some things to grow up in, 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 in and around us. Maybe those religious things that started off good have now become almost like an idol to us. And what I'm saying today is that, you know what, it's okay to say, okay, you know what, maybe I just, I have to do this constantly. For me to grow spiritually, I've got to constantly be in this renewal process. God, what is it you're saying to me right now? What is it that you want to do in my life? What is it that you want to change in my life? Yeah, you know what? Sometimes if we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, it can be offensive. But if we truly want to grow in Him and we don't want to be stagnant, there is going to, it's going to take that growth where we say, Okay, God, I hear what you're saying here. Yeah, this, this thing I've been doing or this, this place I've been going or, or, or these things, Lord, it's time that I, I, I break out of those things. See, when I came to this church, the leadership told me, we're dead. And I said, okay, that you can deal with. That you can revive. See, but in Revelations chapter 3, the church at Sardis, the Bible says that they had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. So I thought to myself, Pleasant Valley Chapel, we understand who we are. Okay, you know what? Maybe we've allowed things to die in our lives, but now God wants to revive them. So I say this to you today. I, I look at the church at Sardis and I go, see, they didn't recognize it. They didn't even see that they had a problem. Some of us in our lives, as we're going through this process, we go, well, you know what? That's what this person told me. You know, you're, you're making it sound as though I've been doing it wrong. Maybe we have been. God is convicting me. Listen, Greg, the way you've done church for 40 years may not be the right way. Maybe what I need to do is he's saying in these last days, I'm raising up a bride. I'm preparing her for myself. Do we want that or do we want the same old religion? In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, it says, the king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander. By the way, that was a little side note. That was free. Okay, I ain't charging you for that one. <laughs> wasn't even in my notes. The field commander with his large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah and Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's Field. They called for the king 
And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. I want you to get the picture here. The enemy presents themselves. This is always what will happen when you take a contrary position to the enemy. He's always going to put himself right out there at your face. As soon as you get saved, guess what? He's going to present himself. As soon as you say, you know what? I'm going to cut this out of my life. He's going to present himself. He will take, as soon as we take that contrary position. Think about this. Hezekiah says in 2 Chronicles 32, After all Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, I'm going to say it about wrong probably about four times today, king of Assyria came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and he had intended to wage war against Jerusalem. The enemy will always wage war when you take this position. He will make an initial assault. He will take territory that he did not have before. This always happens when we, when we make that position in ourselves. We say, I'm going to take the contrary position to the enemy. Now, I will say this to you. If you're not fully committed, you're a lukewarm Christian, you have nothing to worry about. Because you know what? The enemy's not going to come after you. He's happy with where you're at. He loves it. If you're lukewarm, he's patting you on the back. Keep going. Keep going, buddy. You're in the right place. Then the enemy begins to rant. The enemy says this, who you've trusted. Is he going to really make you ready for war? Hezekiah? His words are empty. Who are you putting your faith in? Your allies, Egypt? See, let me show you the areas of your failure. That's what the enemy will always do. He is going to point out every place that you have failed. He's going to show you every place where you have your shortcomings. He's going to let you know, guess what? You remember what you did over there? You can't pray. You know, Glenn asked you to pray. You can't pray. You know what you did last week or last month? 2 Kings 18.23 says, Come now, make a bargain with my master. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. This was basically just a, 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 a saying, listen, I'll give, you, I'll give you the horses so that you can fight me. If you can even find enough men to get on the horses. That was the enemy's rant back to them. See, the enemy always wants us to settle with him. He always wants to give us a bargain. He says in verse 25, I have come to attack this place and destroy it. In fact, it's God who told me to march against you. See, he'll use the very words that God has spoken. He'll say, oh, guess what? Didn't God say this? I want you to look at this picture of Hezekiah as a spiritual battle. How many times... And how the enemy works. He sends his commanders out to speak against the word of the Lord. Who told you that you could take this city? Who told you that captives would be set free? Who told you that you could do all things through Christ that strengthens you? Who told you that I have come to heal the sick? Who told you these things? In verse 26, it says, Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joad said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we do not understand, because, because we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of these people on the wall. Now, I'm just going to give you a little side note. What's happening here? You've got these commanders 
from Assyria standing outside the gates of Jerusalem. You've got the administrators of Hezekiah, who's done all these great reforms. They're speaking back and forth. And as they're speaking, he says, listen, don't talk to us in the hearing of these guys, these watchmen on the walls. Because don't you understand? These watchmen on the walls, they give their life for this thing. He says that they have to actually sit in their own excrement. He says they have to drink their own, you know what? He says because they are so devoted to what they're doing, stop talking like that because you're going to discourage these men who have been our watchmen on the wall. The enemy will tell you, and that's what he told them, make peace. If you do, you will eat the fruit of the vine. You will drink from your own cistern. Choose life, not death. Hezekiah is the one lying to you. This is that verse that I was just talking about. What I want us to understand is this. The enemy always will try to persuade us to not trust in the Lord. In verse 30, he says, Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come with me. Then each of you will eat the fruit of your own vine and fig trees and drink water from your own cistern. He's saying this in the hearing of these watchmen who are having to just devote their lives to this thing. He said, listen, you want life? Follow, follow the king of Assyria. The commander of Assyria issues this challenge in verse 32. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you in what he says. The Lord will deliver us. Hasn't the God of any nation ever delivered his hand, hand from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his hand from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Now I want you guys to, I'm going to take you just for a moment, I'm going to, teach, I'm going to give you a little teaching here. I want you to, I don't know that we really see the whole gravity of what's going on here. This is, the, this, is the, this is the Assyrian nation that has enveloped everything at this time. Everything you see in here, every green, yellow, every place, this is the Assyrian nation. Look, it's even absorbed up around Jerusalem. Everything almost down to Egypt. There, this, is, this is the kingdom that is about to swallow up Jerusalem. This is the kingdom that is at the door of Jerusalem right now saying, Listen, who is Hezekiah? Look at these other nations here. Look at Nineveh. Look at the Euphrates. Look at Babylon. We've swallowed them all up. You really think you're that big? That your God can do anything? See, when you begin to see this picture, you begin to see the gravity of what's going on there. This is a big thing. This isn't just so little matter. Fear begins to set in. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 26, men's heart will fail them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. See, I remember during 9-11, 
Fear broke out in our country. People all of a sudden started going to church, praising God, worshiping. Remember every game? Man, they would, they would say a prayer, and, and, and if there was a football game or a basketball game or a baseball, we were devoted. We were a nation under God. Remember the Rodney King riots? I was working in downtown Los Angeles the night that that broke out. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this, this is like this, the end of the world is coming. I mean, things were being burnt. Things were just being terrorized. People were running. I remember a man walking up to me. His, his, his stomach had been sliced completely open. His guts were hanging out. There was, there was so much chaos that you could not, you didn't even know where to begin to help people. See, fear is a good thing, just like being scared, afraid of a snake. That's a good thing. But when fear from the enemy that grips our hearts, it is corruptive, constrictive, and crippling. It is divisive, demeaning, and destructive. Fear can chain us, hinder our walk in God. It stifles the move of the Spirit. It was fear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, that caused Adam to hide. It was fear in Matthew 25, 25, where the servant who had been given the, the, the talents, he hid them because it was fear in his heart that he would lose them. Fear keeps us from our destiny. Even now, in the move of God over Pleasant Valley Church, fear will grip us. Fear will creep in. Is it really the word of the Lord that's being spoken? Did God really say, Greg, you're supposed to be here? Are we supposed to move out and do what God's telling us to do in spite of the fact that, well, you know, some people weren't happy with it. Pastors are gripped by fear by lo for losing their congregations. Where fear steps in, we'll move out of the move of God. Fear will, will put us outside the battle. Fear of even getting into the battle. What's it going to cost me? What are the dangers? What about my family? The battle intensifies when I step into where God wants me to be. This has always been the enemy's method. The enemy told them here, make peace with me. This would have been their downfall, their demise. Making peace with the enemy and settling. He will tell us, eat, drink, everything's going to be good. If you'll just settle with me. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. The enemy wants to set the agenda, and he does that by putting fear in our hearts. If you're walking in fear, you're walking under the influence of the enemy. The enemy is setting your agenda. If you're afraid of losing what you've worked for, it's not yours anyway. It doesn't belong to you. We have to operate in this life. Glenn and I were just talking at the beginning of the day. It's, it's like an open hand. It's not ours to start with. God, here you go. Because you know what? I only have it for as long as you will allow me to keep it. It's yours anyway. Fear digs in, takes root, and it spreads and, go, and grows. There's a saying that says, Cowards die a thousand times before their death. The word fear means in Webster's, it says it's an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by the anticipation or awareness of danger, whether it's real or imagined. The Greek word for fear is the word phobos. And guess what? There are over 650 phobias. 
Did you know there is a fear of work? Ergophobia. Did you know there's a fear of telephones? Phonophobia. <laughs> so, we, we are afraid of everything. I'm going to give you three extinguishers of fear today. The first thing is, this, 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. This first, in the King James Version here, and, and this is where sometimes I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to a different translations because sometimes I think we get the wrong impression. I want you to think about it. When he says sound mind, how, much, how many of us think, well, you mean he's talking about somebody who's got a, he's kind of wacky in the head. That's what, but we have to understand is in King James English, in 1611, I know most of you guys thought Paul wrote the King James Version. I'm sorry, he didn't. But the 1611, the King's English, this was what they spoke, and this, is what, and this was the best translation they could get. But the word actually means self-disciplined mind. The New American Standard and the NIV use those words to, to help us get a better understanding of it. Now, let's go back to King Hezekiah, just for a second. 2 Kings 18.36 But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded them, do not answer them. See, we, and I, and I say this because I'm saying it to myself, we're not the brightest, we're not the sharpest tools in the shed. God compares us over and over to sheep. Now, I'm gonna, this Max Sacato says this about sheep in his book, the 23rd Psalm. He points out that if sheep are not tended closely, they are in grave danger. For example, if they get thirsty, they might rush into the water to drink, only to get their wool so wet that they can't stand and they drown. So they need a shepherd who will lead them beside still waters. If they get flies and bugs in their snouts, they will bang their nose so hard on the ground that they will actually hurt themselves to get rid of them. So they need oil poured on their, their heads to anoint and heal their wounds and keep the insects away. They are easily attacked by predator, predators because they have few natural defenses. And so they need a good shepherd who with his rod to keep, them away, to keep the enemy away and his staff to pull them back if they need to be. He's telling us this. He gives us this example that a sound mind in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, We cast down imaginations, every high thing that exalted itself above the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I want you to understand today, the battle is in our minds. Fear, normally, is all in our, is all in our head. Romans 12.2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that then you'll be able to prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. It's that renewed mind, it's that self-disciplined mind that will be able to know what God wants to do in this hour. Our mind is the battlefield. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinketh, so he is in his heart. Train your mind. Take captive every thought. Making your thoughts obedient to Christ. That's how we have the mind of Christ. The number two thing is love. Love, and he's talking here, he uses the word agape love. A love that is sacrificial. It is not afraid to be vulnerable. It is not afraid to put itself out there. It is a sacrificial love. And I want you to think about this. If we have died to ourselves, which that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have back to Christ. 
If we have that kind of love, then what is there to fear? If you have already died, what do you have to fear? 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love will drive out the spirit of fear that wants to come over us. Perfect love is not fearful. It trusts. It's confident. It's hope. It has security. Perfect love can only be found in Christ. David would sit alone all by himself watching his sheep. By himself. And fear would come in. Psalms 56.3 says, When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Psalms 23.4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Isaiah says it like this, 41.10. 41.10, he says, so, don't, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you with my righteous right hand. He says in 35.4, Say to those fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. In 41.13, he says, For I am the Lord who takes hold of your right hand and says, You do not fear. He says in 43.1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. You have... You, I have summoned you by your name and by mine. You, in 51.7, he says, You people have my laws in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men. And in 54.14, he says, You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. Now, I want you to think about this. Why, why I use Isaiah over and over again here is because Isaiah was the prophet to Hezekiah. Isaiah tells him, now, and, and, and if, if you guys will, and, and, and this week, I would like you to go over. There is actually, there's three stories, different. They're all the same story, but one's told in, in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. The other one's in Kings, and the other one's in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. There is three books that are actually devoted to this story about Hezekiah. The very one I'm telling you about. I think God was trying to give us a message. He says there in Isaiah 37, 5, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed. See, his fear will drive out, cast out, will despair, will dispel fear. In his presence is no fear. See, our fear cries out against God's character. Does he really love us? Can we really trust him? Is God really big enough? Is he really all-powerful? See, the opposite of faith is fear. Faith doesn't operate on feelings. Fear feeds and thrives on feelings. Fear looks inward to find instability. Faith looks to God. Hezekiah tore his robes. He went into the temple. He sought God. He sought his face because he wanted to know, God, what is it? Do you see what's, ha what's happening to me, God? Do you see this king of Assyria, how big he really is? God says, listen, he says through the prophet Isaiah, don't worry about him. By my, 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 right, my mighty right arm, I will be able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all you ask or even imagine. The last extinguisher is power. You shall receive power, the book of Acts says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power he's talking about in the Greek is a dunamis power. It is a power that changed 
Peter, who feared a little girl, saying, aren't you, uh, aren't you with Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. To a man who said, <laughs> when the Sadducees chose him, what would you rather do? Would you rather choose to obey God or us? He says, I would choose to obey God. They flogged him. It didn't bother him. This was a man who had been transformed by the power of God. After receiving power, he, was, he found himself being counted worthy. Isaiah chapter 37 7 says, Listen, when he hears a certain report, this is, the, this is the king of Assyria. God is telling this through Isaiah. He says, When he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. The same king that I showed you who had conquered all of that area. He says, don't worry about him. Yeah, he's at the gates of Jerusalem. Watch this. He says in Kings 19.35 that that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. See, this is what God does on our behalf. If we'll just allow Him. If we won't walk in fear. If we'll say, God, I, okay, I know that the situation looks dire. But I'll allow you to work on my behalf. God is searching. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God's looking for people who will say, God... I'll step out there. I know it doesn't look good. As I close this morning, I'm reminded of a story. I, was, I wasn't a highway patrolman back in the late 80s. I was a youth pastor in Selma. And my dad was a pastor, and my, my grandfather was a pastor. And at this church... Uh, the, my dad and the associate pastor were gone that weekend, and I was in charge. Now, I was probably about 25 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember the secretary told me, she says, Hey, Greg, um, there's a guy here to see you at the, the front counter. And I walked up to the front counter, and here was this big, burly, Hell's angel. Who says, I'm here to see the pastor. I want to say, I, I don't know any. <laughs> she had already ratted me out. <laughs> she had already told him. So, he makes his way into my office with his girlfriend. They sit down. And now I'm sitting on the other side of a desk and... I have this glass window behind me, and, and so I'm talking to them. He's telling me how that he, I don't know if any of you know Lowell Lundstrom, was a, a pastor and, a, and an evangelist many years ago. And he said, let me tell you my story. My story is this. I was, I was an enforcer for the Hells Angels. My job, this task that I was supposed to go do, was my job was to go and break Lowell Lundstrom's legs. That's what I was prescribed to do. That's what I was supposed to do this weekend. And I went to the service, and I was sitting in the back, and I was thinking to myself, when's going to be my opportunity? When all of a sudden, he spoke directly to me, and the power of God fell upon me, 
and knocked me over. I had never felt power like that in my life. And I said to myself, if there is a power that's like that on this earth, then I have to change my heart. That's something greater than I had could ever even imagine. This, this young man had told me how he'd been raised with the Hells Angels since he was 13 years old. He'd been just given up, living on the streets, and they had basically adopted him. That night he got saved. He was on his way up north to, to a place in Oregon where they take bikers and basically rehabilitate them, and, and it's a, it was a Christian place. So he was trying to get up there. He was on his way, and he was asking for some money to help him get up there. Now, in the meantime, he's telling me this story, and I'm thinking to myself, he's telling me about how many people he's killed, and, and how just before he'd come in to see me, he had been out at the, the phone booth trying to f find somebody to call, and these people had drove up, and they were looking at his girlfriend wrong, and he jumped on the top of their car, and he had... He had in the hood, and he tells me all these things. So now I'm like, I don't even want to look at her. I'm like, I gotta look over this way. You know? yeah. My goodness, he's probably gonna, he's gonna do something to me. I'm thinking of in a way of escape. But I tell you this story is because there is a power, there is a source that is greater than anything that we could ever imagine on this earth. And God's saying, listen. Even in this hour, I know it seems as though I'm distant. I know it seems as though you don't see me like you see me in the Word of God, but let me let you know that I am still here. I am still available. I am still all-powerful. In these last days, God's calling us, listen, rise up in this to listen. Don't let fear overcome you. Don't let fear overtake you. Walk in the spirit of that God has given us power, love, and self-disciplined mind so that we can truly do and be and go where God wants us to go. He's calling us to that today. This morning, if you would all stand with me.